My heart is full after these few days together. There's a, a sense in which for any of us, but especially for anyone who would be up here, there's a sense in which preaching is a burden. It can be heavy to think about the responsibility there, but there's also a great deal of joy that accompanies that. And when I think about our new sister in Christ, and I think about our brother that returned home to the Father, it brings me a great deal of joy to think about that. And what happens there is there are sometimes years of good influence and of good teaching and of family who care and the songs that are sung and the prayers that are uttered and the things that we might study from God's Word. But we don't lose sight in any of those kinds of circumstances that God's working on us. This is His business. And when we think about, I want to reach others, I want to appeal to them, I want to help them, and our heart goes out, we need never forget that that's what God wants more than anything. And I go through my day and I have different concerns and different ambitions or hopes and things that are on my mind. There's nothing ever that's on God's mind but you and me and us being right with Him. And He does all that He has within His power, immense power, to bring us to Him. And we thank God for that. And it may be the case that even this evening, whether you're here with us or you're listening now at home or you listen to this in the future, our heart goes out to you. And we would appeal to you and we wish that we could say something that would touch your heart and would want to make you come and be back with your Father. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you these few days. I appreciate the times we've gotten to visit a little bit outside, uh, the, the kindness of some of the meals you've shared uh, with my Kate and me, and uh, so many of the words of encouragement that do a lot more than even that. And I appreciate that very much. Well, let's start tonight in Galatians chapter 6. We've been talking in the last three lessons Look in the mirror. Don't worry about anyone else. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Tonight is when we say, now lift your head up. Time to look around. Time to think. As you reflect here as a congregation here at Eastside, there are people that come before your mind, and as we think about the job of restoring those who have wandered away, you have people that you picture in your mind. You've got the faces. It may be someone that used to be on a pew next to you or across the building. And you know that they're not in any congregation anymore. And you think of them. We think of our family members. We think of dear friends of ours. And we know that they're in a lost state. And we feel sometimes like the Apostle Paul. When he wrote to the Romans and he said, if it could be that I were accursed from Christ for their sake, oh, that they would come back. We want to think about some things that we might be able to say and do in this study this evening that might appeal to them. Let's start reading Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. God cares for His own. 
And as we see throughout all the Scriptures, God is intent on purifying His people. And if you even go through and you look at the law that God made with Moses and the covenant that He made with them, there are different occasions in which He will say, if someone is guilty of this sin, or of this trespass, or if they have been so rebellious that they have done this, it might be breaking the Sabbath law. It might be blaspheming the name of the Lord. It might be any number of ways you might break the covenant. There are some that are of such great severity, God says, you stone them. Or you cut them off from among your midst. They cannot be in the assembly of My people. And what God is trying to teach us is that He Himself is holy. And He Himself must enforce this holiness and hold that standard. And so He trains us, His people, to sympathize with Him. And to yearn for that as well. And He trains us to identify with Him in that effort. But it must not always be that which is difficult, that which is removal. We want restoration before it ever comes to that. And so He trains His people to imitate His love by our concern for our brethren. What we learn from the Scripture here in Galatians 6 and verse 1 is that it is my job to do, do, try and work to bring about the restoration of those who wander away. You know, I'm going to say a little bit about that word restore. You know, as Paul's audience here is reading this in the original language, in what other context do they see this word restore? Well, this was a word that was used, for example, when uh, there was civil strife and civil war within a city. And then some statesman comes in and is appointed by the people to set things in order, to quell the unrest and get the state and the civic body working together again. This is the word that's used there. In other situations, you might read about friends who had been quarreling in, with animosity toward one another. But someone comes in and reconciles them. He restores the friendship. Or even this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21, as the sons of Zebedee are mending their nets, the same word for restore is used there. But it's also used in a medical context. Uh, whenever someone's limb might be dislocated or a limb might be broken, when the physician sets it or relocates that limb, he is restoring it. And so we're now getting an idea of the picture that Paul is painting for us here. Whenever one of us, one of us wanders away, what has happened is the most serious of things has happened. There has been a, a, a tear, a rend in the fabric of the local congregation. And that can become a fatal tear. And it must be mended. And you want it to be mended before excision has to take place. And so we want to think then this evening about this spiritual life or death situation. Now what it is that we're going to consider tonight, this is such a vast topic. We could talk about, okay, what happens when someone sins against me? And it's, it's in a special way. They have wronged me. How do I deal with that? Or there are situations that we might think about tonight. We're going to think about general attitudes. We're not going to try and address all of these situations, all of these moments. We're going to first emphasize the attitudes that are required before we go about this business of restoration. And then we want to suggest some practical considerations, concerns, and some steps that we can take when we have an opportunity to talk with someone about their soul. So first of all, some attitudes that have to be in place. 
if we're going to do an effective job of what God has set before us here. Notice, if you go back to Galatians 6 and verse 1, who is charged with restoring? You who are spiritual. Now, in the context here of Galatians, if you imagine that there's no chapter break, I think that maybe takes on a little bit deeper meaning for us. As he has gotten to the end of chapter 5, he has said, you Christian, you can either choose to be led by the flesh, the concerns of this world, your own desires and your own agenda, or you can choose to be led by the Spirit. And so what he urges, put away the works of the flesh. They die and you will pass away with them. Rather, put on the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. It can happen, and I say this with a challenge to myself as well, but it can happen sometimes that in our congregations, we have little concern individually for those who have wandered away. That's someone else's job, someone else's concern. They'll meet God in judgment, so will I. I'll just mind my own business. And it can be the case that if we're not careful, we can view ourselves as Sunday and Wednesday Christians in that, you know, it's pretty cool. It's pretty good to be able to worship with my friends and maybe my close family that, that I like. And I roll in on Sunday. I do the worship thing. I do the study. I have lunch with everyone, maybe uh, with a home with some friends. And then I go on my way. And I just don't want the drama. We want drama-free membership. And if that's our attitude... You need not be bothered by the business of restoration. You can leave it to the spiritual ones in the congregation. We have to be very careful. What is my mindset? What is my priority in the local congregation and my role in that? A second attitude that I want to consider with you. As he says at the very end of this verse, consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. You've thought before about what temptations might overtake someone. If I am the business of restoring someone else, well, there's a sin of pride in that I might compare myself to them. Well, I haven't done that. I've never wandered away from the Lord. I've never gone through a period of my life where I've just stayed away from worship or stayed away from assembly or kind of sneered in my mind at Christians. I've never done that. And pride can set in. Resentment can also set in especially if there has been sin that has impacted me personally by someone else in the congregation, if we're not careful, we can view the other individual in a sense of resentment and hold things against them. Or bitterness, or any kind of comparison, anything that would lead me to forget that I also sin from time to time. And it is amazing how skilled we are sometimes in self-deception that we see the speck in someone else's eye and we forget the plank that is in our own eye. While we're on that topic, let's go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 7 as we're talking about considering ourselves lest we also be tempted. Jesus provides for us wonderful commentary and practical teaching on that matter. Matthew chapter 7. In verse 1, the Lord says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. You know, it strikes me as rather a contradiction for us to imagine that Jesus says here, never judge another person, leave that to God. And yet he proceeds to say there are a lot of moments in your life when you need discernment and you need to make some judgments. So what he's saying here is, just be aware as you are going about the business of noticing legitimate sin, being concerned about that, as you are noticing that, you need to first look in the mirror and you need to understand that with the approach that I take toward this person, should I be surprised if this comes back to me from someone else or if my God treats me in the way I'm treating someone else? That is the encouragement that the Lord is giving us here. Yes, restoration involves judgment. It involves condemnation of that which is wrong in another. So what are some practical applications of Jesus' teaching here to go further? When we hear that maybe a brother or a sister has been, as the rumor has it, or as it is said, having caught up in sin, or maybe we observe that they are in a situation that, you know, that does not look good. That does not sound good. Avoid forming judgments and convictions about the situation just based on hearsay. Just based on rumor. You know, social media is good for a lot of things. It is absolutely catastrophic in a number of other things. And this is one of them. Be careful about making judgments based upon appearances. We'll say a little bit more about how to avoid this problem in a, in a little bit. But there's another principle that Jesus establishes for us here. Compassion and love must govern everything I do. Is it the case that we view the project of restoration as, you know, we want to build up the club. We want to get the organization on a better footing. We want to get more solidity within our group, our organization. Or, wow, look at the trophy that will be on my spiritual mantelpiece if I get them back. And I maybe get a little bit of recognition or whispers in the pews that I had a role in that. What am I trying to do here? Always keep before ourselves, what am I trying to accomplish? What I'm trying to accomplish is so that I might be able to eavesdrop and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, to someone who will meet their Lord in judgment. That's what it's all about. But as Jesus warns us here as well, I must examine myself first for my own sin or for hypocritical motives as I might be going about this. And there is something to be said for no, no one is ever perfect. And if restoration is only for those who are perfect, no one's going to be obeying Galatians 6.1. So it's for imperfect, flawed individuals to engage in that. But I'll tell you what, if I let sin go on in my life and I just don't deal with it, but then I think somehow someone else's sin is more urgent, that is going to be an obstacle. And it will be hard for them to hear anything I say because of the sin that I might have to deal with myself. 
Another point here about attitude that Jesus, I think, imposes on us. As He says in verse 6, don't give what is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls before swine. You know, sometimes our honest efforts are going to be met with aggression. But I think what is incumbent upon us and love would demand that we give someone a chance to prove themselves a dog or a swine before we assume they are. Because we know deep down that there has been some moment in my life when I have resented someone else trying to help me get to heaven. I have resented correction. I have had the stubborn, prideful attitude of, what about you? Who are you to tell me? So we need to have a little bit of compassion there, but we also have to understand in terms of just the broad mindset that we have that there's a time to move on. So then, with that said, I'd like to suggest some applications of Paul's instruction to restore. Restoration and practice. I want to divide this up into two different categories. What a congregation does collectively insofar as it is a congregation, an organism. Because there's a sense in which, yes, we are judged individually, but if I learn anything from Revelation 2 and 3 with the messages to the churches, it is that I will also be judged how I have acted in the capacity of a member of a local congregation. So can we say some things to this congregation here or wherever you may be a part of? One point I want to urge on this matter of restoration, and that is, let shepherds shepherd. Let shepherds do the shepherding. One of the most crucial responsibilities that your elders have is to seek those who are lost. Let's turn in our Bibles over to Ezekiel chapter 34. I know what you're thinking. Odd place to go and read about New Testament elders but there are a few chapters, perhaps, that tell us more about the work that these men do than Ezekiel 34. Unfortunately, from the negative perspective, but instructional nonetheless. In Ezekiel 34, the message of the prophet would be to those spiritual leaders among the people in captivity, and part of the blame for their captivity is laid in the hands of the shepherds of the people. In Ezekiel 34, notice verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. And if we pair this then with 1 Peter chapter 5 where the Apostle says, I who am also an elder appeal to you, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And he reminds them, you have a chief shepherd that you'll give account to. What are we learning from this? This is their chief role. Is to keep an eye on the flock and if it need be, leave the 90 and 9 and go seek 
and to save the one that's wandered away and is lost. So what's the spirit with which I'm saying this? It's not with a wagged finger of judgment to the shepherds here. This is actually more so to the flock. And that is, when there is a situation where one of us have wandered away, this situation is sensitive. And it requires the utmost wisdom and delicacy and skill that we all human beings can muster together. You know, if there are sensitive brain operations or heart operations or things like that, it's not just one individual who's just going to go in there and cut away with no prep. You typically have a physician team, a medical team that's working together on this. When we're concerned about restoration, we are performing a life or death operation on something that's much more sensitive and delicate and of eternal consequence than the human body. Let the elders lead. Help them do their work. Help them do their God-given job. Now, how can I do that? When there's a case when we learn that someone has wandered away, this is not the time for, hey, let's all kind of bind together in some posses and just go in there with guns blazing and let's get this settled. No, let the shepherds lead. It may be the case that I am so concerned that I'll go to one of the shepherds and say, could you put me to use? I'm just checking in. Inform me if I can be of any use to you all in what we're doing here. In the meanwhile, I'll be praying. And maybe that's all it goes. Maybe that's as far as it goes as far as I'm concerned. But I need to support them in that work. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 13. Notice Hebrews 13, and let's read verse 17. Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I'm not saying that this is a problem here. This is a good group. And I, and I appreciate from afar the obvious relationship you have with your shepherds. But just remember, they're not in, in an antagonistic relationship with you. Uh, they're never the bad guy. They are working so that you can go to heaven and others can as well. And what that means sometimes is that they might be making decisions or working on a timetable that maybe we don't agree with. Maybe we think that things should move faster or more slowly or more gently or more decisively. But we need to be aware of one thing is that they are working with data, with information, and they have perspectives and vistas that I don't. And they have an idea of the factors that are at play and are taking those into account in which my perspective can be sometimes so blinded and limited. Give them information. Give them support. But let them do their job. Can I say something else about this? About congregations? Foster an environment. Not just as elders, but in every member. I want to contribute to an environment which encourages and supports confession. Both private and public. Let's go over to James chapter 5.
James 5, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is one of those moments where if God gives me a command or an instruction, I need to take it as seriously as he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Do not lie to one another. Do not steal. Love one another. I take these as commands that I am duty-bound to keep. The Lord says through His servant, confess your trespasses to one another. And I think a lot of us can maybe do some work with that. Let's keep reading. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins." You see the intimate flow and connection of all of those verses. If on the one hand we've got verse 16 that says, confess, pray, work with one another to keep one another in the faith. In verses 19 and 20, if someone wanders away, bring him back, see the good fruit if you will do that, then that means what is in between is along the same lines. Now what does Elijah praying have to do with anything? He is not simply making the point, oh yeah, prayer is really strong. Prayer does a lot. Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and then that it would rain, and it did. You know, that's true, and that's a good application to make from here. But why was Elijah praying in the first place that it wouldn't rain? And then why did he pray again that it would rain? It's because he wanted his nation and his people to return to the Lord. This is during the reign of Ahab and of Jezebel and of the terrible sin that had descended on the nation. And Elijah is praying this. God, bring them back through drought or through blessings. Remind them of your severity and your goodness. Bring them back to you. And that's my prayer as well. That's what God wants and if that's what I want and I align my prayer with His will, that's powerful. God can make it rain and become fertile even in the most dry and barren heart. And in order for that to be a culture that's encouraged in the congregation, we have to encourage and support confession. Relationships with others must be cultivated. If I don't know you and I don't trust you, I'm not going to confess issues that I've got. I'm not going to go to you with problems. You know what I'm going to do with my problems and issues? I'm going to hide them. I'm going to hide them from you and pretend I'm someone I'm not. We have to build these relationships with each other. Confession requires vulnerability. Now that is a trendy word of this past decade, is it not? Vulnerability. It's overused and it's maybe misused, but this is appropriate here. Vulnerability means woundability. It is the recognition that no one in this church including elder, deacon, preacher, no one in here, and no one in any church of God's people, is ten feet tall and bulletproof. We need to be aware that we all are guilty from time to time of sin. 
and we need to be aware of the fact that we can go to one another, and it's not just a, oh yeah, I can pray for you and provide some encouragement. A lot of the times it's, I'm so glad you told me that. I've got some issues too. And there's trust that's building. And there's accountability that's building within the group. And as Paul goes on to say in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. I can't bear your burdens if I don't know them. And I can't, you can't bear my burdens if you don't know me. Or if you think that I'm going to bite your head off if you come to me about something. And a lot of this is not just private, but a lot of it is public. When someone comes forward, or someone has something read, and a brother or a sister does return, and they confess, they're to be accepted in the same way with which heaven has accepted them. And that's joy. Go over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You all know the setting here as well as I do, with which Paul is writing the second letter. Paul's first letter cut, it lacerated, it wounded, and it did good, because it brought about repentance. And again, I can't prove it conclusively, but I am one that would tend to think that the individual he's speaking of in chapter 2 of the second letter is very likely the one that he was commenting about in the first letter. In chapter 5. But regardless, there was someone there at Corinth that had been eaten up in sin and they had repented. Look in chapter 2 and verse 6. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." When someone repents of sin and they return to the Lord, we cannot treat them in the days and in the weeks to come as if they're still wearing the scarlet letter. Because the Lord has washed them. Overwhelm them with love, with support, accountability that's shared. And with prayers. And we need to remember in all of our congregations that confession of a sinner is not something that the sinner comes forward and they do. So they can clear the rest of us. They've made the rest of us look bad, so they got to get that cleared up. No. That is not the spirit with which it is accepted. We emphasize the great joy in heaven over their return. And we would expect the same if it were us. Congregations foster an environment in which we can confess our sins to one another and we are accepted as brethren still. I want to turn and say some things 
about us as individuals, personally. You know, it may be the case that one of the elders, the eldership, comes to us and say, we want you to be someone among others who reach out, and we, you've got connections with this person, you've got experience with them, you've got credibility with them, we need you to go just talk with them. Or it may be the case that there is something that I've got a buddy, I've got a family member elsewhere, and they don't have anything to do with this congregation. The elders have enough on their plate, that's not their work. And I can then take that opportunity to say, I'm going to go to that person, and I'm going to do what I can to reach them. Can I suggest some biblical principles for us to consider? Number one is, when you know that's what needs to happen, you know that restoration needs to, to, to take place, and you see the need, and you feel, by God's grace, I'm in a position to maybe do some good. Number one, go. Do it. Think carefully before you go. Whether going alone is better. Now we're not talking here about, oh yeah, this person has sinned against me and injured me personally. You know, Matthew 18 gives us instructions for that. And that's not so much our concern specifically tonight. But is going alone better? Maybe. Maybe in some circumstances. There may be the relationship is such that someone else would just inject an entirely new set of emotions and dynamics that it can be better controlled if it's just one-on-one. There might be other circumstances in which I need someone else. I need to have a partner going along with me and helping with this. That might be the case. Be strategic about that and think about it. Also think about time and place and other circumstances that might impact what's happening. You know, give plenty of time so the conversation is not rushed with this person. You know, don't call them up before they've got to run off to work. Or if you know that they've got something pressing upon them, give it time to where we're not worried about a clock, we can just get down to it. And think about location. I would strongly consider, or urge you to consider to meet this individual at what I would call a neutral place. Or maybe their home, but somewhere that's not your home and your place. Because sometimes conversations don't go the way they need to. And certainly we're not contemplating that there might be physical harm that might happen, although, depending on certain circumstances, you have to be as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. But even if it's the case where the conversation's going along and you come to realize emotions are just out of control now and a soft word or even my own self-possession is starting to go out the window or this, this just is not going well or I've rubbed this sore, it's time to leave. If someone's at your house, that can be quite a, a proposition to ask someone to leave because that could irreparably damage the connection you want with them, the relationship. So maybe go somewhere where at any point you can say if you need to, you know, I'm, I've got to run. I'm going to go now. We'll return to this if need be. Ultimately, though, when we know of the need and we're in a position to help, don't let anything stand in your way of going to meet your brother or sister's spiritual need. If we delay, both as a congregation but also as individuals, if we delay and just let time and time and time go by, you know what we're telling them? You're on the back burner. This really isn't urgent or a priority. Now certainly there's a need for deliberation and thought, 
But if we let time go by, we're sending them the wrong message, and we're also allowing something very dangerous to happen. And that's we're letting a heart become colder and colder and harder and harder. And it may be that if we wait long enough, we will find them in a state that we would not have found them in if we had gone earlier. Go. Secondly, listen. We all, when we're thinking about these conversations and these moments, we run through the things we want to say. I've got the script of how I think this is going to go. But what I suggest to you, go and just close the mouth and listen. Listening is a sign of respect. It's a sign of goodwill. It's a statement that is silent, but it says you matter and where you are and what you've been and what you've done and what I might not understand about your situation is valuable to me. And it shows humility. I don't know everything. I don't have the answers. I might have misidentified what's going on here. It provides the opportunity to hear the situation from another perspective. Listening quietly and actively. And listening is not just, oh yeah, I hear some words, now let me think about what I'm going to say in response to that. Listening involves, how are they sitting? What's their face like? Their tone? Is this out of character for them? We don't say what we really mean often with words. We're bad liars with our body. And watch that. And watch your own. And the message you're sending. And as you are listening and observing, this gives you a chance to say, is this going to be a defensive thing? Are they going to put up the the bars and block me out? And am I going to have to lay siege here? Or are they going to be evasive? Or are they going to be responsive? Learn what they might already be penitent of or regret. And maybe that will direct us from, you know, maybe I don't need to take time worrying about this. Maybe let's go to this other aspect of the situation. Listen. Go. Listen. And thirdly, focus. Make sure and be disciplined and keeping, if at all possible, the conversation concentrated and focused. Be prepared to hear excuses and blame and all sorts of deflection. And we should be pretty good at identifying that and anticipating that because we all are pretty good at those things. Well, what about someone else? They were involved with this. They carry blame for it. They're culpable as well. If they had not said, if they had not done, if they had been there for me, I would not have done X. Okay. It's good to hear that if they truly feel that way. But there comes a point where, yes, okay, maybe that is true about them. Well, what about you? And there's also sometimes blame for the church, other Christians. There's blame for God. And from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden on, we have blamed everyone but ourselves for sin. Sometimes maybe it takes us to say, just a second, I'm hearing you. And yes, others and I myself sin. And we're not perfect. We don't always handle everything well. And maybe there's some things we could have done differently here. But we're talking about your soul. We'll talk about my soul if you want later. Or another time. I want to talk about you. I'm interested in you. I'm concerned about you. How does all of that 
And even if those things are done and were done and you were wronged in these respects, you have said this. You have done this. How does ignoring your sin help you spiritually? Go. Listen. Focus. And this might be the most important one. Tell the truth. Go over with me to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs 27. I'd like to read a couple of verses from this chapter. Proverbs 27, verse 5. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Can I read that again? Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Could I maybe pair this and connect it with another scripture? If you remember, we don't need to turn there because we've got other business here, but you remember James 2. Brethren, if you see a brother or sister who is maybe without food or clothing in her need, and you say to them, be warmed and filled, but you don't do the things that are necessary, what does it profit? If I see a brother or a sister in need, and all I'm concerned about is, yeah, I'll pray for you, good luck with your soul, and I have an opportunity to do something about it, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. But notice verse 6 as well. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. People who have found themselves in a real mess in life have a tendency to find out and to seek out affirmation. And they will go to people often for advice who will give them permission and license and the okay. And they, by instinct, don't seek out those who will tell them the truth, even if it hurts. There are enemies aplenty. There are flatterers aplenty. There are a dime a dozen. Friends who tell the truth, even when it wounds and hurts, are precious and valuable in God's work. It reminds me of something that the ancient Athenian statesman, Phocion, was noted to have said once, when a king was asking him to give him you know, permission, really, and advice to do things that were harmful to the state, Phocion responded, I cannot be your flatterer and your friend. When we go to someone, and some of us have the disposition we want to be pleasers, we want people to like us, there comes a point where ultimately we are there to tell the truth. And we have to make up my mind that if necessary, I'm going to sacrifice being liked by this person. And maybe I'm going to sacrifice other people's approval if they don't like what I'm doing. But if I'm convicted that this is what God would have me to do, I'm willing to sacrifice that. And if it's the case that this conversation breaks the relationship and they're done with me for the rest of our lives. It breaks your heart, but it must be done. Nothing is more important than their soul, whatever it takes to bring them back. And as we are telling them the truth, the truth is Scripture. 
You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Our loved one is captured and imprisoned by sin. God's truth sets them free. If they will agree to read passages of Scripture with you, keep as little of self out of the conversation and keep as much of God in the conversation as possible. Read Scripture with them and apply Scripture to their specific need. But it may be the case that they don't want to read Scripture. They won't have it. The conversation is hostile to that. Still, speak the truth in love. And continually come back to biblical principle. Even if they won't hear direct Scripture itself. Can I make a final point on this individual application? Go, listen, focus, tell the truth. And then lastly... Before you leave, ask if you can pray with them. As seen in the Psalms of Repentance that we studied yesterday evening, prayer itself is a necessary step, and the prayer itself can be a powerful influence for good. Because it's very hard to pray to God, and knowing who God is, to be false and duplicitous with Him. And if they do not want to pray, and will have none of it, inform them that you will be praying for them anyway. And that you won't give up. And that they can just picture themselves at work, or in the car, or at the doctor's office, or mowing their yard, or whatever it is that they're doing. And you can tell them, whenever you're doing that, you can picture me, and I will likely be praying for you at that very moment. You know, we say all these things. We offer all of these concerns and these factors and these bits of advice grounded on biblical principle we trust. But ultimately, we can do no better than following the example of Christ who was unmatched in His skill of restoration. And I want to look at just a couple of Scriptures with you before we close this. And I want to say something about that. You know, if you're like me, there are times in which I think, so many factors, so many things to take into account and to calculate, and different paths or trees of paths the conversation might take. What do I say if they do this or say this? And what about my tone, my nonverbal? And I worry about all these things. And when it comes down to it, the strongest AI cannot simulate enough the best and effective way to reach someone's soul. But I want to tell you something that I have started to observe in my very limited experience, and that is the times where I have kind of maybe forgotten about some of that for the moment, and I have just tried to focus on the Lord and read the Gospels and soak my mind in them, there's just this strange, easy way that comes upon us when we have imbibed of the Spirit of our Lord. And even maybe without being conscious of it, we start to find that we're saying things like he did. And the timing is maybe what his would have been like. And his tone and his demeanor and all that he does, it starts to realize, you know, having the right priority and the right wellspring of inspiration within does a lot to solve some of these issues that we might be concerned about. Go with me over to Isaiah chapter 42. And I want to read about what was prophesied about our Lord 
in his work of restoring with gentleness. Isaiah chapter 42 begins a section of Isaiah that we often refer to as the servant songs. And we learn so much about the work of Christ from these passages. Look in uh, Isaiah 42 and verses 1 through 3. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now notice carefully verses 2 and 3. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. You know what's said here about our Lord? He won't cry out or lift up his voice in the street. Jesus was a powerful preacher. He preached in the streets. It's not saying He would not lift up His voice in that sense. But what is meant here is He is not a rabble-rouser. He is not going around inciting great movements of society that would swell against the currents of the day. Jesus would do His work quietly but clearly. And when it says, a bruised reed He will not break, the picture here is of a reed or some kind of stick. And the picture is that maybe wind or a disturbance, or some animal, or something has bent that reed. And it's not broken off yet, but the slightest movement will end it. Jesus won't observe that broken reed and think, this is useless, this will never stand, and just finish it off. No, He'll take that reed and He will gently straighten it up. And He will stake it off and secure it, and protect it, so it can grow, and flourish, and bear fruit. A smoking flax, or the idea is of a dimly burning wick, he won't snuff out. Jesus won't see, okay, here's this candle, and the, it's burned low, and it's beginning to kind of smolder, it's, it's almost done. That flame is almost out. Jesus won't say, this will never give light. This is useless. And just snuff it out. Pinch it off. No, He will see that smoldering. And He will see the potential for light and warmth. He will cup His hands around it. And gently fan that back into a vibrant flame. So that others can touch it and catch flame as well. Do you remember the occasion in which the Pharisee Simon asked Jesus to dinner? Jesus came. And while he was there reclining, a woman came in that everyone knew in this community to be a sinner. And she comes in and she stands at Jesus' feet and she's holding an alabaster flask of ointment. And she begins to cry. And she puts her face to ground. And she lets her tears fall on the feet of Jesus. And then she wipes them with her hair. And she kisses his feet, embracing them. I kind of envy her. I wish I could do that and say thank you. And she poured the ointment on. And the fragrance fills the room. And Simon the Pharisee is observing all this and he thinks, If this man were a prophet, 
he would know who and what kind of woman this is that's touching him. She's a sinner. What Simon means by that is, I wouldn't let her touch me. Jesus, knowing his thoughts, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, Rabbi, say it. There once was a creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50. But neither had anything with which to repay. So he freely forgave them both. Now then, which of them will love him most? Well, I suppose him who was forgiven most. Jesus said, you have rightly said. And then he turned and looked at the woman, but he said to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? When I came in, you had no water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but she has kissed my feet nonstop. You did not give me any kind of oil or anything or anoint my head. She has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to the one for whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. He said to the woman, go away, your faith has made you whole. A bruised reed. And he propped her back up. I remember another occasion in which he was so tired and hot and thirsty, hungry. He sees this woman with her pot. Give me a drink. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan? If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, the well is deep. You have nothing with which to draw. Are you greater than our father Jacob who dug this well and drank from it? He, his livestock, and his sons, and much cattle. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, it will become in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Well, sir, give me this water so I don't have to come out here and draw anymore. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five husbands. And the one you're with now is not your husband. You are telling me the truth. Has it ever occurred to you why Jesus said, go call your husband? No, it's not just kind of a neat trick, parlor trick to show, hey, I know things that are impossible for a human. I'm a prophet. No. If she had gone and fetched her husband and brought back, you got two sinners to work with. That's better. But it also tells the woman something else, regardless of her response. It's Jesus' way of telling her, I know what you are. I know who you are. And I know where you've been and what you've done. And I want you anyway. And I love you anyway. And you will do good anyway. And that woman left her water pot and went back, and she and Jesus and their respective roles were two evangelists for that village. A smoking flax he will not quench, and that one burned brightly. 
I must become so acquainted with Jesus' manner and his teaching, his kindness, his gentleness, his unwavering commitment to truth, that that so fills my heart that it just bubbles out. And there comes a point where I need to maybe let self set aside a little bit and let the Spirit of Christ work through us in His providence and in His good pleasure. And what that means then is that when it's all said and done, I have responsibility. Reminds me also of the occasion that someone asked the Lord, who is my neighbor? Well, who is my neighbor? There once was a man who was going on the road from Jericho and he fell in among thieves. And they beat him and stripped him and wounded him and left him for dead. A priest walks by, sees him, goes on the other side. A Levite comes by, sees him, goes on the other side. A Samaritan sees him and he stops and he checks on this man, binds up his wounds, pours oil on his wounds and wine on his wounds to attend to them, puts him on his own animal, brings him to an inn, and stays up with him through the night. And on the next day, he gives the innkeeper a couple of days' wage and says, if you spend more than this, I will come back and I will settle with you. Take care of him. Who is neighbor to this man? Jesus' questioner was caught. I uh, suppose the one who gave service to him. Go and do likewise. You know, yes, Jesus here is teaching us about physical things, but I think much more than that. How much more so when we see spiritually wounded fellow travelers on the road to heaven? When we see them wounded, stripped by the evil one, and left bare and exposed. If I pass by and neglect their state, severe judgment awaits me. Have compassion. Seek to bind up their wounds. And work with the great physician to bring them back. And I want to close with you before we end this series. Turn with me over to Jude. Letter to Jude. We ultimately think that if I will do this and extend myself in order to reach someone who is lost to restore with gentleness, it may be that this person can be like that sinful woman. Or can be like that Samaritan woman. And they can do a powerful amount of good again. And it may be that they can use their experiences and their regret and their failures to then turn and help someone else. And if we can just be the smallest link and contributor to that wonderful work of God and bringing them back, there's no joy like that. And when we do that, and we have the joy, and we rejoice as a church or as individuals, it's not joy over, wow, that feels really good for me. I think Jude gives us the answer of why there's such joy. Look in Jude verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, 
looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Dear sinner, come to Him tonight. Break your heart. Give it to God. He'll make it whole. Come to Him in just a moment. We're going to be standing together. We'll be singing that song. And that is an opportunity for you to look around and see if I will make that step. Look at everyone who's going to be standing right next to me. Helping me and guiding me sometimes. Got, got my back sometimes with me in all of this. And if it's the case that you wish to come to this gentle, kind, merciful Savior for the first time, what a wonderful night for you to have your eternity assured in His blood. And if you would confess your faith in Him and your repentance from your former way of life, you'll be immersed in baptism tonight. And all of us can go on our way rejoicing in the glory that will be revealed for us. And if there's anything that we can do to encourage you, we pour our hearts out to you in this song while we stand and while we sing together.